Philippians chapter 4, let's turn there. I want to thank uh, Adam for preaching last week. I know that was a blessing uh, to the church. We were able to listen to that while we were in Florida. Uh, and it also really affirmed uh, his calling in the Lord. Uh, it was um, such a blessing to hear God use him uh, as he brought the word. And it was a blessing for us because it allowed us to be able to get away on vacation for the first time in almost a year. And uh, it, was, it was weird, uh, not vacation, and being with my wife, that was fine, but it was weird because for the first time in 16 years, uh, we were not with any of our kids, and they were all in different locations. Matt was in Illinois, Annie is in Iowa, uh, and Jacob was down in Florida with us, but about an hour away from where we are. And um, we were able to, to spend some time and kind of get refreshed personally and spiritually, which uh, we were so grateful for. And then while we were there, uh, we took a day of just devoted study, but um, I was able to study and prepare to preach this passage of Scripture, which is my favorite. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. This passage has ministered to me uh, so much over the past 28 years, especially uh, because the Lord has really used it to teach me and to challenge me and to refine me uh, in terms of really walking by faith and having the right perspective on life. So uh, I hope it will bless you, and I hope anytime we read Scripture that uh, we'll really open up our hearts and prepare to receive the Word because God's Word is good, right? God's Word is so good, and it's so uh, edifying, and every time we open it, every time we open it, it teaches us. So we have an instant learning opportunity and an instant encouragement opportunity Every single day, anytime we open the Word, it will never, you'll, you'll never read Scripture if you really give your heart to it. You'll never read Scripture and come away going, I got nothing out of that. The Lord taught me nothing. It didn't have any application in my life. I don't care if you're reading Deuteronomy. It will still minister to you. And God will teach you. So we really need to make sure we prioritize opening the Word of God and studying it. Okay? We're almost done our study in Philippians. We got two weeks to go. This is one of them. Chapter 4 of Philippians, verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you've received your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, but I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now go back and read verse 11 again because it's really kind of the key verse, the foundation for our study this morning. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Now let me say that it's pretty easy to talk about contentment when you've been seeing some of the views I've been seeing for the last week. I knew you wanted to see some of my vacation pictures, didn't you? Everybody say amen. All right, so I want to show you a couple of just the beautiful scenes that we saw. Um, this was just on the beach. And that doesn't tell you much, but it was beautiful, and it was blue every day. Uh, go to the next one. This is our beach chairs that we borrowed where we were staying, and that just, that just says everything. Don't you want to just sit there just for a couple minutes and just hear the surf? And then... We um, found a Groupon. We went on a dolphin watching tour. So 
on a big speedboat and the dolphins would come and they would swim in the wake and then they'd jump out. And it was just an amazing expression of God's creation. Then it got even better when we started seeing sunsets that were just, I, I can't even describe how beautiful they were. This was one of them, but this was the one that really got us. Julie took that picture holding her phone down in the water. Um, but words can't even express how beautiful that was. And we just were, we sat there for about two hours that afternoon and just stared at the sky. And we really didn't do anything. We just sat in the chairs and looked at the sky and watched the sun as it slowly came down. And there were these big pillar clouds and the sun just sank into the pillar clouds. And then it, the sky just lit up and it stayed that way. We stayed there until it got dark. I'm not bragging when I'm telling you this. I'm just saying when you're sitting there at the ocean staring at that and you don't have the unusual normal responsibility and you don't even have kids to watch over and worry, are they okay and do they need anything? And it's just you sitting there marveling at God's creation. It's very easy to, to feel content. In fact, I found that I rarely felt discontented when I was on vacation. Uh, I, I'm only discontented that um, it... it doesn't happen often enough, and that it costs too much, and that it went far too quickly, and that it ended too early. But as I thought about that, and I thought about the, the, the feelings that I was feeling while I was on vacation, and, and just getting time away and time to relax, it, it reminded me of how circumstantial it is. Because I woke up yesterday morning, and we knew it was the day to leave. We had to leave by noon and drive up to Tampa and catch our plane. That I... I I woke up feeling a little bit down. Now, it wasn't that I didn't want to come home, didn't want to, didn't want to see my kids. I'm going to see my, my son this afternoon. We're going to see Annie on Thursday. And it wasn't that I didn't want to see you guys, didn't want to come worship. I was so anxious to come worship because uh, we didn't get to last Sunday. But leaving vacation meant that I was coming back and having responsibility and that there was work and that there weren't any palm trees. I love palm trees. I kept driving down Taylor Avenue this morning looking for palm trees and there aren't any. Just in case newsflash here, there are no palm trees on Taylor Avenue. And I got so used to seeing them that I was like just kind of expectant of that. So, so I found myself as I woke up and as I'm driving up to the airport, I'm like, yeah, I, I want to get home, but, but boy, I've really enjoyed just being able to be on vacation. But then I thought back to a week ago and this pastor's conference that we were able to go to down in Naperville and how blessed it was to be in the presence of the Lord and how awesome it was to hear wonderful biblical teaching and how great it was to worship and, and to praise God with first hundreds of pastors and then thousands of people at a concert and, and just the joy and satisfaction that came from that that will last me far longer than sitting on the beach. See, we didn't define contentment very circumstantially. Well, if I could just get away, or if I had this kind of uh, finances, or if I had this relationship, or if I could do this, or if I could be somewhere else, that, that I'd be content. But, but being content in the spiritual is so much better than thinking that we're content in the, in the material. Because as great as vacation was, it was really, really, really hot. I don't know if you can tell by my face. It was really hot. And we drove a lot. And we were away from our kids. And then it ended. See, what he's talking about, if you look back at verse 11, this true Philippians 4.11 contentment, 
that is never found in the material things of life. Because the material things of life very easily strip us of our contentment. If anybody had the right to feel discontented at this stage of their life, it was the Apostle Paul. Because he's writing this letter while he's in a jail cell in Rome, and he's writing to believers in Philippi. He's old. We've reviewed this, but let me review it again. He's old. He's physically unwell. He's got some kind of calamity. He can't see well. He's lonely. He's been betrayed by many, many people. He's seen people that he trusted leave the ministry. He's seen people that he trusted turn their back on him. He knows at this point that his public ministry is pretty much done. He's not going to get out. He's not going to go back to Ephesus. He's not going to go back to Thessalonica. He's not going to have a preaching tour. He's not going to establish more churches. This is pretty much it. And yet his faith is so resilient and his commitment and conviction are so strong that he's still doing effective ministry work. He's evangelizing the guards and he's talking to fellow prisoners and he's writing these letters to to churches and he's talking about the gospel and he's encouraging believers and he's encouraging pastors and, and he's strengthening the church and teaching doctrine. I mean, all these things he's doing while he's in a situation that would seem to argue for discontentment. And at the same time, Paul is looking at what he's seen because he was there really with the birth of the Christian church. He knew about Pentecost. He knew what had happened. He was a little late to the party. But by Acts chapter 10, God has saved him. God's called him to be the minister to the Gentiles. And he's seen a great movement sweep out of Jerusalem, into Judea, into Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And all throughout Asia Minor, all throughout Italy, all throughout Greece, he's seen the gospel spread and people becoming saved and churches being set up. And that's been wonderful. And yet now he's seeing a shift. Because now culture's starting to turn against Christianity and persecution that he used to participate in now is increasing against the church. And now he's seeing that the church itself, and we see this in Corinth, and in Colossae, and in, and in Ephesus, and in Galatia, the, the church now is starting to fall back a little bit. And Christians are starting to go back to their old life and become a little bit more carnal. And, and the church is getting infiltrated by false teaching, and it's becoming disunified, and people are thinking about themselves. And all of a sudden, what he saw, and the excitement of the spread of Christianity now is taking a hit. And believers are starting to drift back, which is why we have most of the New Testament. If the church was strong and on fire and following the Lord and living by the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't really need the book of Ephesians, would we? Because he wouldn't have to address the problems. He wouldn't have to write to Corinth and say, cut it out, stop thinking about yourselves, stop arguing about who's better based on who baptized who, and whether you spiritual gift, you have this spiritual gift, this spiritual gift. Knock it off. I mean, that's basically, if you want the vernacular 1 Corinthians, it's knock it off. Paul wouldn't have to write that if the believers were staying faithful to the Lord. And as I'm thinking about that this week and how, how the 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 change happened in terms of what was going on in the church, I thought that's very similar to the time that we live in. Same issues that were being dealt with in culture. Sin was rampant. Sin was overt. It's not like 2015 is unique. We're just more aware of it. What's disturbing now is that Christianity is starting to be hit more and more. 
Which is why Paul wrote the books he wrote to Corinth and to Ephesus and to Timothy in Ephesus. And it's why he's so specific here. If you look back at what we've reviewed the last few weeks, starting in chapter 4, verse 1, it's why he's so specific about how to live. It's why we need Scripture. We need Scripture in our lives. I know that is foundation Sunday school third grade 101, right? You need to read your Bible. How many learned that growing up? Well, some of you didn't because you grew up Catholic or Lutheran, right? You never opened a Bible. Well, here's third grade Sunday school 101. We need to read our Bible. Everybody say amen. The Word of God is living and active, and we need to be in it. And even if you didn't grow up in a culture like I did, where we opened the Bible in church and where we had teachers teaching us, just like what's going on downstairs right now, faithful teachers teaching the Word of God to our kids. Aren't you glad for that? We need to be people of the Word. You say, well, I didn't grow up studying the Word. Well, now's the time. Because the Word of God is so wonderful, and it's why we need to know Scripture, because Scripture tells us what to believe and how to stand for it. Listen, it's been a really shocking and significant week in our world. We have seen Romans 1, and we have seen 2 Timothy 3 and 4 actually be personified in the decisions and actions that have taken place in our country and our world. We've seen gay marriage become the law of the land as the highest court in the country basically circumvented the Constitution and wrote law, which it's not allowed to do. We've seen the White House itself, the building, be used as a marquee for a social agenda. We've seen Hindu Christians attacked in India and terrorist attacks in France and Tunisia and Kuwait. We've seen new methods of torture that ISIS is developing. They're just getting creative now on how many ways they can kill somebody. We've seen Christians murdered in a church during a Bible study in a town that I've walked by that church. Times are changing. And it would seem that, and I've, I've prayed about saying this, it would seem that the Holy Spirit is starting to ease His restraint on the world and that the devil is now pushing forward even harder on his own agenda. And I don't think it's critical and I don't think it's hyperbole to say that that the country and the world simply does not understand the long-term implications of all of this and they won't until it's too late. Instead, they're celebrating the enemy's agenda. And even among Christians, there are some that that are disturbed, there are some that are accepting, there are some that think all these changes are okay, but there's nothing in Scripture that would would defend those decisions. There's nothing in Scripture that would would advocate these. So I thought what Franklin Graham said about the state of spiritual ministry in the country or the spiritual state of the country was very good. Listen to what he said. He said, I pray God will spare America from His judgment, though by our actions as a nation, we give Him less and less reason to do so. Guys, we need to pray for Franklin Graham because he is standing firm for the gospel. He's the leading evangelical voice right now for the gospel and for the Lord. And isn't it interesting that all the prominent pastors uh, that, that get all the press, we haven't heard one word from them. Franklin Graham is standing for the Lord and, and we really need to pray for him because the enemy wants him. And we need to pray that he will continue to speak the word of God. You know, Paul knew that kind of hardship. 
He knew this. He knew persecution. That's why he's in Rome. That's, that's his current circumstances. He's sitting in this jail cell because he was preaching the gospel and people didn't like that, so they threw him in jail. But, but look at what he says here in the text. Look back at verses 10 and 12. He thanks the, the Lord for what he's done. He thanks the Philippian church for being agents of the Lord and, and ministering to him and helping him. But even more so, he finds all his joy and strength in the Lord. See, Paul writes to them and says, there's a practical cost to ministry. And you guys have been faithful. You guys have ministered. You have given to the work of ministry so I can keep going on. But, but I also want you to know that even though I've had times where I've had plenty of money and plenty of supplies, and I've had times where, where I, I lacked and I was suffering, I have learned that there is a secret to life. I've learned that there's a secret to dealing with both. And it has nothing to do with cash. Now here's where I really want us to focus in. You may want to take out some paper. We want to write some things down. Look at verse 11 and look at verse 13. Because Paul says there's a mindset that we have to maintain. It's in verse 11 and it spills over into verse 12. And then there is the sufficiency of God in verse 13 that we have to rest in. Notice that he doesn't say, I can do all things through Christ because He gives me what I want. I can do all things through Christ because when I need something, God just says here. When I want something, God just says here. And that gives me strength because I'm getting my way. That's not what the verse says. He just says, I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. This is not prosperity theology. Prosperity theology is found nowhere in Scripture. Prosperity theology is not defensible. In fact, Scripture contradicts the concept. This is not some kind of unique pass. Well, I can do anything that I want because the verse says I can do all things through Christ. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. Uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tempt God. And I'm going to say, well, God, you've got to show up because your verse says you can do all things. This is not about tempting God. This is about living in a sufficient provision and learning to be fully content in that. And what struck me as I was studying and just listening to the Lord and a lot of times staring at the ocean this week is that discontentment is internal, not external. Discontentment is internal, not external. It's a personal dissatisfaction that's focused on not getting what we want, not getting what we think we deserve, and not having our expectations met. Let me say it again. Discontentment is internal, not external. It's focused on not getting what we want, not getting what we think we deserve, and not having our expectations met. So discontentment, that word, doesn't necessarily apply to what's going on in the world. Discontentment is about how we react to it. It's about the internal. It's about whether our personal, spiritual, internal discussions that are going on in our heart and mind are, are about us or about being satisfied that the Lord is enough. God is either enough or He's not. There is zero middle ground. God is either everything to you, He's either sufficient, He either provides, you can trust Him, you do trust Him, you love Him, He is, he is everything, and you're fully confident in that, or He's not. 
There is not a, a middle world that we can just walk in. Well, I, I kind of think God's okay and, and I can trust Him, but, but there are going to be times where that's negotiable, times where I want to intercede a little bit and have my way. No, there's no middle ground on this. Either God is everything or He's not. And ultimately, there are four issues that we hold in our minds that block this kind of contentment that Paul's talking about. I want to encourage you to write these down. I'll try to go through them quickly. There are four issues that we hold on to that block this type of Philippians 4.11 contentment. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. The first thing that blocks contentment is our appetites. Our appetites. I'm not talking about that I'm hungry and want pizza right now. I'm talking about the appetites of our heart. Have you ever noticed that the short, uh, the, the, the word apps, which stands for, I think, applications, right, tech people? Shows how stupid I am. The word apps is also a short version of the word appetites. See, it's, it's indicative of our thirst for more. Our thirst for fresh entertainment. Our, our fresh... For, for things that will amuse us. And I learned this week, I never knew this before, that the word amuse in French means to stare stupidly and waste time. Think about that. For, let, me, let that sink into your heart for a minute. The word amuse means to stare stupidly and waste time. So all the amusement, all the things that the world is saying, here, this will entertain you, this will amuse you, when you look at it, its goal is to stare stupidly and to waste time. So ask yourself, how much do I do this? How many apps this morning are on your phone or tablet? How many do you have? How many screens of apps? How many of those apps, I'm going to offend some people here, that's okay. How many of those apps are spiritually related or designed to build you up spiritually? How many of the things on your phone or tablet or your computer or whatever you use at this point, how many of them are spiritually edifying, spiritually related? How much time did we spend this week on apps versus time in the Word? How much time do we spend on apps versus time in prayer? Now they say that's an old school question that's kind of trite. It's a legitimate question. Because the most common statements that Christians make about why they don't pray and why they don't study the Bible is, I don't have time and I don't know how. Now the first one, I don't have time, really is not legitimate because time is an issue of prioritization and an issue of importance. The second one, I don't know how, really isn't legit because what are we holding in our hands this morning? We can read this, we can study this, we offer opportunities to read it and study it. So if we're not studying the Word, we're being called as believers to move away from the bottle, to move away from the milk, and to get into the meat. The problem is, the apps are entertaining. The apps are amusing. I was sitting on the plane last night, wedged in the middle seat. Planes have gotten really unfavorable, haven't they? And, and Julie was against the window. We were lucky to get seats. We're on Southwest, and they don't have seating assignments. So we're like, race onto the plane. So Julie's on the window, and she's typing on her laptop. And Jacob's on the, on the aisle, and he's got his, 
his MP3 and he's listening to music or whatever. And I'm sitting in the middle of my Bible and my pad. And, and eventually, after about an hour of studying, I thought, I'm really uncomfortable. I'm going to get out my phone. So I got out my phone and I started playing. Um, I forget what I played because I didn't have internet. I started playing Angry Birds. That's, that's fun, isn't it? And I sat there and I thought, what a dichotomy between studying the Word of God and, and all the thoughts that were pouring out of my heart right on the paper. I mean, I just had a pad because I didn't do my laptop. And I started writing and God was just giving me thought after thought after thought after thought after thought. And then I dulled my mind and I started just playing woo-wee and the three birds going in. I can't kill the pigs and, you know, Right? And I was struck by the dichotomy of that. But the app's appealing. I needed to shut down my mind for a little bit. I was bored on the plane. I was wedged in the seat. I couldn't get out. They gave me a little bag of snacks and, and you know, a little thing of diet Sprite that had more ice than drink. And I drank it in one thing and then I was done. And I had dry snacks. And I, I can't go anywhere. We always want more. I was regretting that I hadn't downloaded more apps that could be played without internet. And we know that the apps are appealing just like we will when the iPhone 7 is released. And no, you haven't missed the start date for it. But when the iPhone 7 is released, we'll, we'll, we'll want to go get one of those. I heard on the radio this week, there was no iPhone 10 years ago. Can you imagine that? There was no such thing. We had an example of it when we went on the, on the dolphin thing. The captain of the boat, who was, who was what I want to be, he was this big, rugged marine with these huge muscles, great smile, good looking. He's living on a boat watching dolphins. I mean, what better life is there than that? And, and, and he's, he's happy and he's very friendly. And we were talking to him a lot because he was a really nice guy. Here's, here's a guy who's been disciplined. Here's a guy who served a tour five years in the Marines. I mean, this guy could break me in half with his fists. And the thing that was distracting him as he's driving the boat is the fact that he had his iPhone plugged into a plug in the thing and it wouldn't charge. And I'm watching him for like 30 minutes fiddling. He's taking off the battery. He's literally, I'm not joking, steering with his foot. Okay? Steering with his foot, not watching the wake, not looking for dolphins. That was his associates. And he's steering and he's messing with the iPhone, taking off the cover, shaking it out because he can't get a charge. Here's a guy that knows everything about discipline and he was completely distracted with 50 of us on the boat driving through the Gulf of Mexico because he couldn't get his iPhone to work. And I thought, that's appetites. What are your appetites? What are you doing to feed them? How much contentment do they bring you? How much frustration and distraction do they produce versus peace and joy? Second one, I'll go quicker. Arrogance. Arrogance gets a hold in our mind and it blocks contentment. Pride will always block contentment. I'm going to say it again. Pride will always block contentment. Why? Because pride is the root of sin. You can't be in sin and be spiritually content and at peace. It does not work. They're like magnets that repel each other. You can't be in sin and be content. And this is the great deception of the enemy, that he's a liar. Proverbs 14.12 and Proverbs 16.25 say the same thing. They say there is a way that seems right to man, but it leads to death. If the Lord repeats a truth 
twice, you should probably pay attention to it. He wants us to get it. And if there's one verse this morning, I'm convicted, that, that the world needs to hear, especially Christians, it is this verse. There is a way that seems right to man, but it leads to death. The Supreme Court upheld gay marriage this week, which means the culture doesn't just want to get equal rights. That's what they're saying. What it wants, ultimately, is for all of us to affirm that it's right, even if our biblical convictions tell us that we need to love and minister to people that are gay and share the gospel with them, but not accept or endorse the marriage. But the threat now is very real. It's already beginning with Christian colleges. Next will be churches. And next will be homeschool groups. This is not a, a, just a statement of being recognized or legitimized. It is a movement to indoctrinate and absolutely change the practical, moral culture of our country. And Christianity is in the crosshairs. And, and this will be relentless until we conform. And it's all pushed by the enemy who's the God of this world. And it's all bred, listen now, out of his arrogance and the arrogance of man. The enemy has always thought that he can do it better than the Lord. And he's pushing his agenda harder because he sees Christians being soft and pliable in their convictions. And he sees, I believe with all my heart, the Spirit slowly pulling his hand off the country as the return of Christ becomes more and more imminent. And as Christians, we never, uh, will never be content in our mindset if we say, for me to live is me, which is what culture is saying. We will only be content if we say, for me to live is Christ. So there's appetites, there's arrogance. Third, quickly, there's bitterness. We've all been personally hurt. We've all been damaged by somebody. We've all been, been, been betrayed in some way. There's something in our past that's really affected us. I don't think I, I know anybody that hasn't been hurt in that way. And you may have bitterness from feeling those feelings, but it may have now moved into bitterness, feeling like the Lord didn't help you, or the Lord didn't protect you, or the Lord didn't lead you, or the Lord didn't do right by you. Remember, please, this morning, that God is always faithful. He loves us more than we could ever imagine, and He proved it from the cross. So where do we think those feelings, the bitterness and the anger and the resentment and the hostility and the jealousy and the pain, where do we think those feelings are from? And remember, they are feelings. They're completely subjective. We don't know what's best. I don't know what's best for my life this morning. Only the Lord knows what's best. I can't see the long-range vision of what the Lord's doing. I keep asking Him and saying, Lord, show me, show us, what do you want to do? And God's starting to open up answers. But I can't see it all. We see through a glass darkly. If we could see everything that's going to happen, we would say, whoa, wait a second. I see some good, but I also see some things I do not like. I do not want to go through that, Lord. And we'd start to negotiate with Him. But I've found in 41 years of being saved that God always comes through. He always comes through even when it seems darkest. God is always faithful. Look at the fourth thing. Comparison. Comparison. 
Comparison is when we're constantly looking at other people jealously or comparing our life. And when we do that, it always stunts contentment. It's interesting that we don't look at people who have less or people that are in a worse situation than we are and say, I, I, I'm grateful, Lord, for what you've given me. Instead, we tend to look at, at people who have more than us and we feel frustration. We should be moved with compassion when we see people who have less or in difficult situations or who are away from the Lord. Like Christ, our hearts should be broken and we should be moved with compassion. We should want to love them and share the gospel with them and minister to them. Instead, we tend to look at people who have wealth and lifestyle and live in a great location and have friendships and have social standing and success and we say, why can't I be like them? I'll confess to you, I found myself doing this. As I sat down Thursday morning and I started to study, I, I, we the night before had watched a very prominent Christian speaker who was in an audience speaking to about, I'm guessing, 13,000, 15,000 people. I'm not going to tell you who it was, but I have struggled for a long time to understand this person's appeal because I found that uh, their theology many times is not too sound, but this person's so well-known, and, and it's really kind of inexplicable to me. And, and I found myself, I'm being honest, before the Lord and before you, I found myself being jealous. And I sat there on the couch, and, and I looked at Julie, and I looked at the crowd, and I said, how can that be? How can that be that that person has 15,000 people hanging on their every word when they're really not teaching theology and it's, it, it just doesn't seem genuine. And then I found myself being jealous when we were having lunch in a place called Siesta Key, which I highly recommend you go down there and visit that. Siesta Key is this little, little tropical village that's just so quaint, and it's never seen 30 below. It's never seen four-foot snowdrifts ever in its life. Siesta Key is, is beautiful and wonderful. And we were sitting there and I'm looking at, at the people who live there and work in restaurants that, that have all the side open because it's so beautiful and 80 degrees. And they're walking around in shorts. And I watch kids going by on their bikes eating ice cream and thinking, you're never going to see snow. And I just kind of sat there and I thought, what a life this would be. And my heart started to get resentful. See, comparison can really damage your spirit. How many know that's true? Comparison starts to damage your spirit, and we do it socially. Look at all their friends. Why am I not included in that group? And we've got to be careful of that church that we don't exclude. Why, why am I not in that group? Why didn't I, I go there? And, and we do it spiritually. Why is that person being blessed and I'm not? And we start to compare our lives, and we feel discouraged and defeated and that discontentment not only stuns our maturation, but it also is an indication of a problem. See, the bottom line, let me bring this down to a close. The bottom line is, is Christ enough for us? Is knowing Him and trusting Him more than sufficient for your life? That was a question the Lord really challenged me on when I lived in Dallas in 1988. And it's why this passage means so much to me because when I look at verse 11, God personally, 20, how many years? 27 years ago, He personally said to me, 
Paul, you have to live by this verse. This became my life verse, Philippians 4.11, and he's repeatedly tested me on it, and I will admit to you that I have failed on it so many times, so many times. But I've also learned that it, to be faithful to trust him and to be learning to be content in the face of whatever you face is how God wants us to live. And even though I'm far, far, far away from having any kind of real competency in this verse. This verse really, look at it one more time. Don't look at me, look at the verse. This verse is the PhD of Christianity. This is the higher learning degree of spiritual maturity. It's the ultimate expression of love and complete dependence on the Lord because it, this, this only happens when we're at peace with the Lord when we're walking completely by faith and according to His Word and according to His Spirit, it's only when we're doing that that we will learn and grow and understand what it means to be content no matter what's going on around us. And to be at peace personally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and to be satisfied and content in the Lord in whatever's going on, that's really the mark of spiritual maturity. But it only comes, look back at the start of the chapter, it only comes when we can honestly say, to me to live is Christ. And then we're living according to verses 4 to 9. Rejoice always. Have a gentle spirit. Be anxious for nothing. In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then experience the peace of God that comes out of that and, and have your heart and mind guarded by Christ and intentionally guard your heart and mind and then dwell and practice only on what's true and honorable and righteous and pure and lovely and of good report and of worthy of praise. See, there's no substitute. There's no alternative to these commands. And the enemy lies. He says, well, if you could just get your way, you would be content. But if you notice Anything this week. Notice how the appetite of the unsaved is never truly satisfied. People that are not living biblically and don't love the Lord gain a victory now over whatever they want to get, but it won't be enough. They'll keep wanting something else. And they will not stop. Listen carefully now. They will not stop until Christianity is completely repressed and defeated. Or until the Lord comes back, whichever comes first. And my money's on the Lord coming back first. There will not be a cessation. That's what we're seeing right now. And it's these four things we just talked about. It's the devil's appetite for what he can't have. And his arrogance in thinking that he deserves it. And in corrupting the heart and mind of man. Why? Because he's bitter against God. And he's comparing himself to Christ. And he thinks that he can be the Savior when Jesus Christ is the only Savior and Lord. No wonder these four things hinder our contentment because they're the property of the enemy. And yet, we've got to say, all praise to the Lord Jesus Christ because he has won the eternal victory and not only has he won it for himself, but then he says, I'll redeem you and I'll make you more than, tell me what, more than conquerors. Come on, guys. 
More than conquerors through Christ. You have the victory as a believer. You are now defeating sin and death. It doesn't control you anymore. The chains have been broken. My heart's been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. God has delivered us. God has redeemed us. God has saved us. And if that wasn't enough, he says, now you have victory. Now you are more than conquerors. Not just a conqueror. A conqueror is somebody who wins. He says, you're more than that. I'll give you more than that in your life. That's how Paul can sit in this jail cell and say with full sincerity and conviction, I've learned the secret. I've learned that whatever's going on, whatever circumstances, whether I'm being dragged down or exalted, whether I have plenty of resources or nothing, whether I'm in Philippi preaching to you or I'm in this rotten jail cell in Rome, I have learned, I have discovered, I have been educated to be content in all things. Can we honestly say that about our lives? Can we joyfully say, I'm abiding constantly in the presence of the Lord because we're told in His presence is fullness of joy. So if we're discontented, if we're frustrated with, with our, our life and our circumstances and even the Lord, listen now, let me say this carefully, it is an indication that we haven't really been in His presence. It's an indication that we're not abiding in His presence because discontentment, and frustration do not linger when you're with the Lord. They disappear. Discontentment, frustration, anger, jealousy, hostility, bitterness, comparison, arrogance, appetites, they do not linger when we're in the presence of the Lord. They disappear because when we're in the presence of the Lord, all the focus is on him and not on us. And this chapter shows that. When we're walking with him, when we're dwelling on him, we're content. When we're not walking with him, when we're not dwelling on what's pleasing to him, all bets are off. There's no way we'll be at peace. There's no way we'll be content. There's no way we will be able to confidently say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because our focus will not be on Christ, it'll be on us. But when we do live for Him, when it's for me to live as Christ, He gives us full assurance of His strong provision and He gives us full assurance of His contentment. Listen, the circumstances that you and I are dealing with are minuscule. The circumstances you and I are dealing with are minuscule compared to the greatness and power and sufficiency of our Savior. What I'm going to deal with this week, the problems I'm going to have to address, the things in my own life that I've got to uncover, those, those are just tiny little specks in the grandness of the universe of God's power. And when we put our confidence in Him, these 12 words in verse 11 will define our lives. I've learned in whatsoever state I'm in to be content. Whether I'm abounding or abased, whether I'm full of 
all I need or have nothing. I've learned that the secret is to walk with Christ and to be content.